Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, February 17th, 2023, we discuss the question, does the Administrative Procedure Act provide for universal vacatur? My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call, as the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, we'll keep our introductions brief, but if you'd like to know more about any of our participants, you can access their impressive full bios at fedsoc.org. Today, we are honored to have with us as our moderator, the Honorable Judge Stephen Menashe, who has served the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit since 2019. Prior to being appointed to the Second Service, Second Circuit, excuse me, he served as Special Assistant and Associate Counsel to the President in the White House and as Acting General Counsel in the U.S. Department of Education. He was also an Assistant Professor of Law at Scalia Law School at George Mason University and as a partner at Kirkland Ellis in New York City. I'll leave it to Judge Menashe to introduce our panel. One last note, throughout the webinar, if you have any questions, please submit them via the question and answer feature so we have access to them when we get to that portion of today's webinar. With that, thank you all for being with us today. Judge Menashe, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, and thanks to the Federal Society for organizing this panel today. Uh, today, our topic is the availability of universal vacater under the Administrative Procedure Act. That is, uh, whether courts uh, may invalidate entire regulations for everyone in the country consistent with the APA rather than being limited to providing relief uh, to the parties before the court. Uh, given uh, the rise of policymaking through regulation and, the, and some recent discussions about uh, forum shopping uh, among judicial districts, the stakes are potentially very high. And it's an issue the Supreme Court might address this term because uh, in a pending case, United States versus Texas, which is about federal immigration policy, uh, the question of universal vacater under the APA um, uh, is implicated. So to help us uh, puzzle through this, these issues, uh, we will hear from three distinguished panelists. I will introduce them uh, in the order in which they'll speak, and then they'll each have uh, give us opening remarks, and then we'll open it up for discussion among the panelists and questions uh, from the audience. So first, we'll hear from Beth Williams. Uh, Beth is a member of the United States Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board and a pro professorial lecturer in law at the George Washington University Law School. She served as Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice from 2017 to 2020. Then we'll hear from John Harrison. John is the James Madison Distinguished Professor of Law and the Thomas F. Bergen Teaching Professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. In 2020, he published an essay in the Yale Journal on a regulation bulletin called Section 706 of the Administrative Procedure Act does not call for universal injunctions or other universal remedies, an essay that's become uh, influential in this area. Then we'll hear from Ron Levin. Ron is the William R. Offwine Distinguished Professor of Law at the Washington University in St. Louis uh, School of Law. Uh, his essay, uh, Vacater Nationwide Injunctions and the Evolving APA, is forthcoming in the Notre Dame Law Review. Uh, so with that, uh, Beth Williams. Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much to Judge Nashi and to the Federalist Society for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on this panel with such distinguished scholars on this topic. Uh, just to give the standard disclaimer, in case my agency's general counsel is watching, I'm not here in my capacity as a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, and any views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. government, the board, or any other board members. 
So uh, on to the fun part. The oral argument in the United States v. Texas in November was a very interesting one. As background, the state plaintiffs brought a challenge to the Department of Homeland Security's guidelines for the enforcement of civil immigration law. Essentially, the Biden administration has been trying to prioritize certain groups of unauthorized immigrants for arrest and detention. The states, on the other hand, are arguing that the guidelines are at odds with the bright lines or categories that Congress laid out. And the merits of the case are interesting, but for our purposes today, the focus is on the remedies discussion, and that's where some of the fireworks were. It's not often the chief says wow to an argument made by the Solicitor General. And there were some good natured ribbing among the justices uh, between those who belonged to the DC Circuit Cartel, as Justice Kagan named it, and the other justices. The cartel, as it were, would be comprised of the chief, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Jackson, all of whom served on the DC Circuit before being elevated to the court. But of course, there's one more member of the court who also served on the DC Circuit, Justice Thomas. And it's not clear whether Justice Thomas shares the views of his fellow DC Circuit alumni on this issue. So what made the chief say wow? Well, the Solicitor General advocated a very different interpretation of the meaning of set aside in the Administrative Procedure Act than the DC Circuit or really most anyone had taken before. Section 706 of the APA provides the reviewing court shall hold unlawful and set aside agency action findings and conclusions found to be in violation of six listed standards of review, among which, of course, is if the court finds the action to be arbitrary and capricious. For decades, the DC Circuit has taken set aside to be the equivalent of an authorization for the courts to stand athwart the administrative state yelling stop. And for many people who have issues with the size and insulated power of the administrative state, that's a good thing. Uh, in many ways, the APA and the changes of presidential administrations have provided the only meaningful checks on the actions of regulators. But originalism. Uh, in recent years, there's been some fascinating academic work, most notably by Professor Harrison and by Professor Sam Bray at Notre Dame, that set aside never meant what everyone thinks it meant. Did Congress, when it passed the Administrative Procedure Act in 1946, with a very different administrative state, mean to give a district court judge the power to completely strike down or vacate regulations as to everyone? Or did it mean to allow courts to set aside or disregard an unauthorized regulation with respect to adjudicating the case for the parties before it? And of course, regardless of what Congress intended, what did people understand set aside to mean at the time? There's good historical research to suggest people did not understand the APA to be majorly displacing well understood norms of equitable practice. And if that is what Congress was doing, wouldn't they have put it in the remedies section, section 703, rather than the scope of review section, section 706? And wouldn't they maybe have used stronger language than set aside? So this is a fascinating case of statutory interpretation and in some ways uh, sets up a textualist originalist split on the court. At oral argument, you have Justice Kavanaugh making a textualist argument that set aside means set aside. That's always been understood to mean. He said that the rule is no longer in place. Contrast that with Justice Gorsuch, who focused more on the structure of the statute and also seemed more receptive to the government's and Professor Harrison's originalist arguments. Um, so predictions for this term, where does that leave us? I could, of course, be wrong, but my prediction is that the court is going to punt on the question this term. 
Uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. First, this is a major issue of statutory interpretation, and the briefing was not extensive. It's just a few pages on remedies at, at the end of each brief. And you would think that if the court were going to tackle a question this big now, they would ask for additional briefing. Second, as many have noted, there hasn't been percolation in the lower courts on this issue, so the court doesn't have the benefit of circuits weighing in. Third, the government made only the statutory argument and not the constitutional argument before the court. The statutory argument is that universal vacator is not actually authorized by the APA. The constitutional argument would be that even if universal vacator were authorized by the APA, such a statute would impermissibly extend the court's power beyond the case or controversy limitation of Article 3. In the somewhat related context of nationwide injunctions in Trump v. Hawaii in 2018, Justice Thomas raised this constitutional question in his concurrence when he said that even if Congress someday enacted a statute that clearly and expressly authorized nationwide injunctions, courts would need to consider whether that statute complies with the limits that Article Three places on the authority of federal courts. Again, that constitutional question was not briefed in this case. And finally, if the court gets to the remedy section, it can resolve the question through the alternative argument of section 1252 and not get to the question under the APA. So implications, what if the court sided with the government and concluded that set aside in the statute does not provide for universal vacator, what then? Well, the irony of all this is that it wouldn't actually change much in DC. As Professor Bray explains, the reason for that is the power of precedent. So if party A sues the federal government in DC and wins, and also wins on appeal to the DC circuit, then that ruling will have precedential effect for every person who comes later who sues the federal government in DC. The court doesn't need to vacate the rule, it just needs to issue a judgment. By power of precedent, everyone who comes next will win and everyone can sue the federal government in DC. So after a loss in the DC circuit that's not reversed by the Supreme Court, the government as a practical matter is not going to keep going with a rule held to be unlawful in a place where everyone can sue it. Reading set aside not to mean universal vacator matters more in every other circuit. In four where the government can't be sued by everyone in the country, the precedential effect of one decision is necessarily not as broad. But still, the government may then make the decision not to enforce its regulation within that district or circuit, or may make the decision that nationwide uniformity is so important to the particular regulatory scheme that it will rescind its rule. But the relative importance of uniformity or the workability of disuniformity sits with the elected branch, not the judiciary. All of that is to say that reading the APA not to authorize universal vacator still maintains the APA as a significant check by the judiciary on unlawful regulatory action. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Beth. Uh, John. Thank you. First, briefly, my answer to the question is no. The first thing I'm going to say is because I'm a law professor, I'm going to quibble with the question and say that universal vacater is redundant. The interesting thing about vacater is that the lower courts have come to see it as a remedy distinct from other remedies, and in particular distinct from injunctions against enforcement, distinct from declaratory judgments, and vacater as a distinct remedy intrinsically is universal because it operates on the legal status of what the agency has done, and therefore operates as to everyone. An injunction against enforcement, by contrast, can be universal, can tell the agency not to enforce against anyone, but doesn't have to be. 
universal. That is governed by principles of federal equity, I think. Whereas the interesting thing about vacater, if it's available, is that it's always universal. And a large part of the argument here is the idea that by calling for that kind of remedy, not just injunctions and declarations, the APA sort of pretermits the whole argument about whether universal remedies are appropriate by creating universal remedy and calling for it. So it's, imp it's important to keep straight the distinction between remedies that might be universal, notably injunctions, and the idea of vacater, which has to be universal because of the way it's, the way it's conceived. Second, my substantive claim is that the argument that the APA itself resolves this question in favor of vacater is, is incorrect. Rather, the APA doesn't contain any of the law of remedies. It points to other sources of the law of remedies. It does so no, most notably in 5 U.S.C. Section 703, which describes the system of judicial review, divides the world into special statutory review and other forms of proceedings for review. Special statutory review is conducted pursuant to specific statutes that usually provide for review directly in a court of appeals. There are a lot of statutes like that. There were already several when the APA was adopted. Some of them use the word set aside. Some of them will say set aside. My claim is they mean whatever they need. The reference to the use of set aside in section 706 doesn't add anything to that, nor does 706 change anything in the other forms of proceeding, notably the suits for injunctions, declaratory judgments, damages, habeas corpus, all of which are listed in section 703. They all have their own law of remedies, and the place to look for whether a universal remedy is available is in that body of remedies. Some of the proceedings with their associated remedies that are referred to in section 703 clearly are remedies that are specific to a party. Habeas is on the list. The remedy in habeas is for the petitioner to be released from confinement, stick from confinement. Damages are on the list. The remedy for in, in damages is an award of damages to the specific party. Declaratory judgments are on the list. Declaratory judgments declare the rights of parties, but injunctions are on the list. Maybe injunctions can properly be universal, maybe not, but that's a question about the law of injunctions. It's not a question about the APA. That then raises the question, that's basically a, a, a structural observation observation about the way APA judicial review is set up. It's divided into these categories and each one has its own law of remedies. That raises the question, what about section 706? There's no indication that section 06, seven section, section 706 was designed to change all of those other components of the law of judicial review. Section 706 doesn't reach into other, into special statutory review provisions and say, stop doing whatever that statute was doing and now do what section 706 means by set aside. Section 706 doesn't change what goes on in habeas. It doesn't change what goes on in the declaratory judgment proceeding. Declaratory judgment proceedings are governed by the Declaratory Judgment Act. So what does set aside in section 706 mean? I think it means one of two things. I think the best reading is that it means what set aside sometimes means in other contexts, Put aside, disregard, don't decide in accordance with, and then go on and do whatever the court should do. That matches section 706, which is about scope of review, and tells the courts what issues they are supposed to decide, what issues they are to leave to the agencies. And section 706, read that way, tells the courts, here is what you decide for yourself, 
And if you decide that the agency is on the wrong side of the law, then don't decide in accordance with what the agency has said. Another reading, I think the second best reading, because maybe, I don't think so, maybe Section 706 refers to remedies in some sense when it says set aside. The other possibility is that's a generic placemark for whatever is the appropriate remedy. So once again, Section 706 points back to special statutory review proceedings, points back to injunctions, points back to the Declaratory Judgment Act, for example, but that's where the answers are found. They're not found in section, in section 706. So that's why I say the attempt to look to the APA for the answers to these questions is unavailing. The answers are found elsewhere. There are bodies of law that answer this question, but it's not the APA. Okay, uh, thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, Ron. Okay, well, let me start off with uh, where I agree with John. Um, I agree that universal vacater is a redundant term because vacater means by definition applying across the board. Um, uh, however, his answer to the question posed in the title is incorrect. The correct answer is yes. And I will try to explain why that is so. Um, uh, it's true that when the APA was adopted, most judicial review of agency action occurred in regard to adjudication and substantive rulemaking was relatively uncommon until the 1970s. So the idea of using the APA to invalidate an entire rule may not have been specifically contemplated by the drafters. But I think Congress had intended to provide the courts with sufficiently broad remedial authority to keep up with emerging challenges. And in this instance, the set-aside language of 706 is very broad anyway, so there's no real tension between the literal words of, of the act and the manner in which they have used it over the decades. Um, in my uh, forthcoming article in the Notre Dame Law Review, which has been mentioned and also an earlier piece I wrote in the Chicago Kent Law Review, I reviewed a host of situations in which the APA has been construed con creatively to meet emerging challenges, even if these holdings departed somewhat from the original expectations of the drafters. In other words, originalism is not a very common phenomenon in APA jurisprudence. Um, so in particular, as rulemaking has emerged as an important force, the courts have recognized the need for controls over the rulemaking process. So standing has been broadened beyond what the APA text says. We have the hard look doctrine, which was certainly not commonplace in 1946. The practice of requiring that the factual premises of a rule um, have to be based on the administrative record, the idea that agencies have to reply to material comments they received during a rulemaking. Those things are not in the text. They were not in the original expectation, but they've come to be accepted as part of our culture uh, and administrative practice. And I see vacater as being in a very similar light. In fact, I go on to argue in my paper that a court's ability to nullify a rule in its entirety is a practical necessity. Why is that? Well, think about applying an injunction that applies only to one uh, plaintiff in an extensively regulated uh, industry governed by a host of complex rules. If a single company, one pharmaceutical manufacturer, one airline, one pipeline company obtains judicial review and is told, all right, you don't have to comply with a rule, but nobody else does, the result is that uh, everybody else has to continue to comply the result is, uh, is a chaos. If the rule is going to be revised, it has to be revised 
to apply to all the similarly situated companies in, in this type of situation. And furthermore, the reviewing court is not entitled to specify just how the rule should be revised, because that would invade the agency's responsibilities to execute the law. So we need to be talking about a remand, not piecemeal relief for an individual plaintiff. And the rule is either going to be remanded or not remanded. So the courts have very sensibly interpreted Section 706 to allow vacater. Um, and it's a basic premise of administrative law practice. In cases that are familiar to us all, uh, as foundational cases in administrative law, Chevron, State Farm, uh, Brown and Williamson tobacco case, American trucking, uh, Regents, the recent Dreamers case, all these presuppose that if the challenger wins, the um, uh, the rule would be set aside in the sense of nullified. So it's not just the D.C. Circuit. This is part of what administrative law practitioners have accepted for a long time. It would be deeply revisionist to depart from it. Now, I want to add that I don't I think courts have and they should have discretion to decide whether and when to, to issue a vacater or a nationwide injunction. Uh, admittedly, the, the language of Section 706 seems to present a problem in that regard because it says a court shall set aside agency action that flunks one of its review uh, criteria. But the answer I've given in my work is that the word shall uh, should not be read literally. The cases don't read it literally. 706 is seen as a declaratory provision um, that sets forth broad principles but leaves it to the courts to flesh out what the language means, and it's consistent with that to treat it as authorizing vacater, but not commanding the courts to use it in every situation. Now, I've got some ideas about how courts can use that discretion to damp down the ill effects of nationwide injunctions, and we can talk about those uh, in the discussion period. But for now, I'm just going to stand on my claim that vacater is at least lawful under the APA. All right, thank you very much, uh, Ron, for an interesting discussion. I want to remind everybody in the audience that if you have any questions for our uh, panelists, please use the question and answer function uh, and write the question in there, and I'll read it for the, the group. Uh, but let me ask, I had this question just um, to John, who uh, seemed to say it's it's possible to understand 706 as providing some remedies in some sense. So 706 does also say, in addition to the set aside language, that uh, reviewing court should compel agency action unlawfully withheld. Does that not suggest that 706 is about remedies? Is that not a remedy that you would get um, in an APA challenge? Good question. First, that appears in section 706.1, the hold on lawful and set aside language is in section 706.2. 706.1 is about agency inaction. 706.2 is about agency action. I think that structural difference gives a reason to think that section 706.1 does have something to say, although it's completely generic. It's, it just means give whatever affirmative relief is appropriate. Some reason to think section 706.1 has a reason to address the question of remedies at very broad level. Level, very high level of generality because it's reiterating the point that might not might otherwise not be clear, which is that should a court give any affirmative relief at all? For example, when an agency has failed to regulate, should a court say, yes, the agency must regulate? That's a sufficiently questionable 
matter, but I can imagine why Congress would say, want to underline that and say, and yes, give whatever it is the appropriate remedy. I, I think there's a difference between Section 7061, Section 7062, and even if there isn't, that reference to remedies in Section 7061 is completely generic. It just means give whatever remedy is appropriate, and indeed, Section 703 names an appropriate affirmative remedy, which is a mandatory injunction. That's language that appears in Section 703 and not Section 7061. Um, and so if they are parallel in that respect, I don't think they are, then what I said is I think the second best reading of set aside in Section 706.2 is appropriate, which means it just means and give whatever remedy should be given under federal equity, under the special statutory review provision, in habeas, whatever it is. So one, one way or another, Section 706.2 is actually 706.1 also, neither one of them is adding anything to the law of remedies. For both of them, the actual law of remedies is found somewhere else. Could I ask John a question following up on that? Sure, go ahead. Under your second best reading, why can't you treat that as meaning that if vacater is the appropriate remedy, you can give it as part of whatever remedy is appropriate? It sounds as though that's that would be consistent with the, the reading that I've been proposing. Uh, two, 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 points, two points about that. Thank you, Ron, that's an important point. First, something I, I've been trying to emphasize, and I'm gonna keep trying to emphasize, and it's, I think it's, a, it's important for the, the way this debate has, has developed. Because, in my view, Section 706 is not giving any new instructions concerning remedies, and if, if that is a generic reference, that points us primarily to federal equity. And before the debate started about Section 706, there was a pre-existing debate, largely connected in its origin with Trump against Hawaii, about whether, for example, universal injunctions were known at the time of the framing, whether they are an appropriate development of equity from the time of the framing. Those, I think, are the crucial questions. That's what courts should be, and, and the lawyers should be talking about, is, is this an innovation in federal equity? If so, is it a proper innovation? In federal equity, the discussion of Section 706, I think, is a, is, is a distraction. The other thing I'll say is that in a number of the forms of proceeding referred to in Section 703, something, something like vacater is simply irrelevant. The, a petitioner for habeas doesn't want anything to be vacated. The petitioner for habeas wants an order saying, let me out of jail. Uh, the, the, da the damages plaintiff wants money damages. Somebody wants a declaratory judgment, wants a declaratory judgment about that person's rights. So the idea of vacater is, is, is relevant for equitable remedies. And the question is, is that is that a proper use of federal equity? Okay, I have a question uh, from the audience, which uh, is about the language of the, or what set aside might mean. And so it cites Black's, the question cites Black's Law Dictionary from 1944 and says to set aside a judgment, decree, award, or any proceedings is to cancel, annul, or revoke them at the insistence of a party unjustly or irregularly affected by them. And the questioner says, it seems to me this is an argument against Professor Harrison's point that there is no evidence set aside meant to act upon the agency action itself. Sure, the definition suggests Abbott Labs overextended 706 relief but that isn't a textualist attack on set aside, rather frustration with Abbott Labs. And so I guess maybe I'd ask uh, two questions about that. Uh, so one is, is the problem uh, the expansion of pre-enforcement review from Abbott Labs? 
And second, if set aside meant uh, to annul or cancel a judgment, uh, if at the time of the APA, everybody expected agencies mostly to regulate through adjudication, uh, is it just the emphasis on rulemaking now that asks them, that, that is the cause of the problem, but if the statute is asking the court to sit in judgment over a rulemaking the same way it would over an adjudication, doesn't that suggest there's a power to annul the underlying action, which here would be a rulemaking? Uh, I hope that wasn't too complicated, but does anyone want to, maybe it seems like it's directed to John to first and then we'll get reaction from everybody else. Let me, let me, let me start about that. And the, fir the first point I want to make about that is yes, that is that is one of the things that set aside could mean at the time of the APA. It's one of the things that set aside can mean today. And it's one of the things that set aside may mean in the various special statutory review provisions that use those words, set aside. So yes, that's possible. The question though about section 706 too is what does set aside mean in a provision that governs the whole gamut of proceedings for judicial review, in some of which that kind of remedy that might be thought to act on the agency's action is not, is not relevant, like damages and habeas and, and, and declaratory judgments. So for structural reasons of the APA, that understanding of set aside can't be appropriate in section 706.2, even if it's appropriate elsewhere, including in some special statutory review provisions. I think it's also true that part of the story here about how that language got into Section 706, originally 10E of the APA, is that when the APA was adopted, although there were rules, the focus was much more on adjudication. And it is possible to imagine a remedy in an adjudication that operates both on what the agency has done and specifically on the relations between the parties. Because when an agency does, does an adjudication, it binds that that particular party, and so dissol dissolving the the what's normally called an order, that is to say, depriving it of its legal force, might also not have effects beyond those of the party. So it's it's as you're suggesting, it's very important to keep in mind the the, the, the difference between adjudications and and regulations and the predominance of adjudications at the time of the APA. I think it's also true that Abbott Laboratories has changed the focus of review of regulations to the pre-enforcement context. And in the pre-enforcement context, a remedy like something like vacater seems more appropriate. And so I think the courts and, and the lawyers have sort of tended to forget, post-Abbott Labs have tended to forget a lot of the other forms of proceeding and have forgotten the fact that Section 706 has to be understood so that it can apply to all of them. Any other panelists want to weigh in on uh, these questions? Sure, I can, although uh, maybe Beth wants to speak to this. If not, I will go yeah. forward. Okay, well, so in the first place, uh, surely people have understood set aside to mean nullify in a number of contexts that are really not controversial in the adjudication context, which has been pointed out was the usual context in the initial decades of the APA. People understood that if, if an adjudicative order um, is, is found to be unlawful, the court would, would nullify it. 
Um, I think John has indicated in his writing, and I think maybe today, that in the case of special statutory review provisions for rules, set aside was understood to mean you can kill the rule and it's gone. Um, so what do we do then about um, uh, cases that are reviewed under the APA, but not under a special review provision? Um, I think that the, the uh, adaptation to Abbott Labs has been a sensible one. And given that Abbott Labs has been on the books for a long time and really is not controversial on its own terms, uh, you would expect that people would apply the APA in a manner that responds to it. If you have a pre-enforcement review proceeding where you're just asking uh, the court to, to uh, get rid of the rule itself, uh, it's pretty hard to, not to think that sometimes vacater is the only sensible remedy. Uh, think about Chevron. Uh, okay, uh, the question is, um, can the EPA define um, stationary source to mean an entire facility rather than a particular piece of equipment? Are you going to say there's one answer for one company that sues and another answer for a company that didn't sue? That would make no sense. They've got to treat it as, as a... Uh, as a whole. And so it's been a necessary adaptation, I think. I, I also want to speak to the Section 703 point. Um, Section 703 says that the court may resort to uh, any applicable form of legal action, including the particular ones that are listed there, declaratory relief, injunctive relief, and habeas. It sure doesn't sound as though they're, they're ruling others out. In the legislative history, including was glossed as such as. So why can't it be the case that a remedy that wasn't specifically contemplated is now read into the APA? As I said before, originalism is just not a common feature of APA interpretation. And I wouldn't expect that it should be in this instance. Yeah, so so Beth, what about that that point? So Ron says that it was a necessary adaptation in the way uh, the cases have evolved and our practices have evolved in uh, administrative law. Uh, I think based on the Chief Justice's questioning at oral argument, it would be disruptive to uh, to say that that's not what the APA means. So what? So so why are the benefits of the kind of disuniformity or the case-by-case case adjudication, why does that outweigh the disruptive effects of uh, reconsidering the precedents? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. And I, I think Ron made a really good point at the outset that there's lots of uh, different elements of current administrative law practice under the APA that are atextual, right? And then have developed through common law and through judicial orders. And, and you know, maybe, maybe this is not that different. And maybe this uh, power or this reading of set aside has grown up in order to uh, provide a natural check post Abbott Labs and to kind of match that type of, of pre-enforcement review. But, but practically, you know, I think it's a question not only of, it, of what will be the implications if it is read this way, but who's in the best position to decide what the implications should be, right? And so if you, if a court, um, a judge, you know, adjudicates a claim against a single plaintiff and assume it's not in the D.C. Circuit and the, it's not, you know, the court doesn't strike down the rule, um, is it in the, is, it, is the court better situated to decide that the entire regulatory scheme is therefore unworkable and unenforceable? 
or are the elected branches, you know, the executive branch in, in this case, in a better uh, position to decide whether how they will respond to this adverse court ruling, right? And 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 what the scope will be of how they're going to respond to the court court ruling, whether they're going to you know not uh, to to basically um, not follow the regulation, to rescind the regulation, or to keep fighting in other courts if they get an adverse ruling in the Fifth Circuit. Maybe they'll continue to litigate in other circuits and to to raise it up to the Supreme Court. Maybe, but you know, I think someone considering the Applications would say that the elected branches rather than the courts are in the best position to decide that question of workability. All right, thanks. I have another uh, uh, APA textual question for John. And the question is, 705 authorizes courts to issue all necessary and appropriate process to postpone the effective date of an agency action. And 551.13 defines agency action to include rules. So if 705 authorizes courts to postpone the effective date of an agency rule, couldn't 706 refer to vacater of an agency rule as well? Once again, I think the possible seeming parallel is not a, re is not a real parallel. Se yeah, Section 705 is about, is about preliminary relief and hence is saying something about remedies. One interesting thing about Section 705 is that it has, it has that slightly convoluted language, all necessary forms of process, which quickly became understood to, me, to mean an injunction. That is to say something governed by the law of injunctions. So even section 705, which does point to remedies, then points to the, to the, law, to the law of injunctions. Whereas section 706 is largely about another issue and it's about a very important issue. It is titled scope of review. It was titled scope of review when the APA was adopted, it still is today. And that, and that question that Section 706 is about, that Section 705 is not about, is of is a fundamental importance. And again, suggests that 705 and 706 are not that much parallel because 705 is on a topic that is much more about remedies than Section 706 is. Okay, thanks. I have another question. Uh, the questioner says that several of the panelists have premised the arguments on the idea that vacater is inherently universal. Uh, and notes uh, Jonathan Mitchell in his Rid of Erasure Fallacy article uh, suggests the possibility of geographic severability. And the question is, can vacater be subject to geographic severability in the same way that an injunction can? And if not, why not? And that's related to another question we had, which is, could it be that a federal court might vacate a rule, but only within its geographic boundaries? And maybe that would allow for uh, some containment of the practice and allowance for different views. So I guess maybe I'll start by asking Ron, because you said you had some proposals for how this should be handled. And it does seem like you are, you do recognize it shouldn't be done in every case. And so what about geographic limitations or other limitations? And I'll ask the other panelists if they have uh, uh, proposals along those lines as well. Right, so I think, well, I would start off by just saying on a semantic level, we would more likely refer to that type of relief as granting a, a limited injunction, not a nationwide injunction. And there's no tension with the concept of injunctions there. Vacater, I think, is more commonly described as, as uh, across the board. But that's, that's only a semantic point. On the substance, yes, I think that there should be situations where an agency, uh, where a court should say it is feasible in this situation to limit the scope of our injunction to our circuit so that other circuits would have a chance 
to weigh in. We don't want to preempt them by giving nationwide relief. Um, and where that is where that is workable, I think they should do it because nationwide injunctions do have um, perverse effects in, in a number of ways. Um, so that is a question of, uh, of granting no broader uh, an injunction than um, is needed, which is a, a, a premise of equity. And can I just ask, why is that a better approach, limiting it to the geographic boundaries of the circuit than limiting it to the, to the parties that are before the court? Well, I, there could be situations where that would do it, but, but then you, you will often have uh, situations where um, uh, uh, the rule does not operate coherently because all of the players in the game are um, uh, interacting with each other, competing with each other, where the agency is trying to manage a, a program and if, if it's done totally retail, one plaintiff, uh, you lose that effect. Now, what I do think you can do, and this I think is implicit in your position, is that if the agency adopts a, a rule and then applies it to a particular respondent, then the court can say, okay, we're gonna set aside the application, the order that applied the rule, just to you, and then the agency, the agency can continue to fight on uh, in other adjudicative cases. That's what non-acquiescence is. And it, there's nothing wrong with that because it does give other circuits the chance to weigh in. Uh, okay. Beth, I think you wanted to weigh in. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, I think, you, you know, just to put a point on it, I think that what we're saying is that vacator is necessarily universal, but injunctive relief is not necessarily universal. And so if you're, if a court is vacating something, they're, they're vacating the rule um, as to, as to everyone, but they don't, they wouldn't have to do that. So if they're deciding the case just in the part to, as to the parties before them, the operation of, you know, of precedent would, would, would control anyway, and that would have natural geographic limitations. So even if you were deciding the case, with an injunction, just as to the party before you, that case went up to the Fifth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit agreed, the injunction by precedent would only apply in that circuit. Now that's different from the DC Circuit as I was talking about, because anybody can sue the government there. John, you wanna say something? Yeah, I, I, I wanna say that Beth's point about precedent is extremely important. And one practical application it has is that if, if, this, is a good, if this is a good way to go, and maybe it may be as a matter of federal equity, it's something the courts of appeals should do and not something the district courts should do because it's the courts that circuit precedent and the district and the district courts don't do that. And as for, as for nationwide uniformity and, and the practical imperatives that Ron's been talking about, let me point out that there are a lot of important areas like the interpretation of federal criminal statutes where there is not nationwide uniformity, where it, it can be years when an important statute has a different interpretation in one court of appeals Compared to compared to another, that's unfortunate, but it brings with it the benefits of percolation, and those are real. So yes, there is a practical case for nationwide uniformity, but it's not it's not a laydown, I don't think, because in other areas, uh, the legal system manages with that in order to achieve other good other good things. 
Yeah, so, so let's ask about the question of percolation and uh, non-acquiescence, because I have a question from the audience about inter-circuit non-acquiescence. And so the question is, what bearing does this debate have on inter-circuit non-acquiescence? The general understanding is that if, say, the Second Circuit finds a regulation invalid, the agency might still enforce it elsewhere and give other courts of appeals the chance to consider and perhaps uphold the validity of the regulation, and that that process has systemic benefits, including percolation. If one accepts that, does that have implications for whether courts can or should vacate a rule altogether? And Ron, in his last answer, suggested that intercircuit non-acquiescence is limited to cases where uh, you can vacate an order applying a rule to somebody. But is that a more limited conception of intercircuit non-acquiescence than maybe you'd advocate, Beth or John? I don't know, why don't we say that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that that obviously, you know, can play an important role, but I would just say that um you know, I don't know if you would need that if you if you read uh, you know, if you read set aside in the way that Professor Harrison is explaining, and now the the Solicitor General and the United States government is is explaining, you know, it's up to um, you can imagine, you know, in my previous role as the chief regulatory officer of the Department of Justice, you can imagine that um, the United States government, there would be plenty of situations where that they would choose a regulatory scheme where that they would want to, they would feel that it was important to enforce it, even if they didn't so um, uniformly. Uh, and so uh, I would think that you would want to allow as much percolation, percolation as possible and not have one district court judge be able to shut down everything immediately. So we, you should have as much percolation as possible. We just disagree on what's possible. Um, uh, I, yes, so I think um, where the, the traditional role of non-acquiescence is in context of adjudicative orders, so secu social security cases, immigration cases, and tax cases and the like. Those are situations where um, the agency uh, isn't, the, the court isn't, wiping out the rule, they're saying the, the, the order that applied the rule is invalid and other circuits can take a different view because the rule is still on the books. Um, on, the, on the level of regulations, well, if, it is, if it's adequate to give declaratory relief, that wouldn't shut off other circuits. Uh, also, I have proposed in my paper that there should be a presumption that a nationwide injunction should be stayed pending appeal not instituted immediately. And the stay would give other circuits time to uh, to weigh in. So those are practical accommodations, but at the end of the day, there are times where the only meaningful relief is to say that we find this rule to be invalid and it has to either stand or fall for the entire industry. So our view is, uh, we hold it's on it's unlawful. We set it aside, subject to, you know, the checks that go with that, like appellate review, stays, and and the and the rest. Could you explain that a little bit? So, so when is it that uh, it might be enough to declare the rights of the parties, uh, and the certain or as versus a circumstance where you must declare the rule invalid? As it, what if they ask for declaratory relief, or you say there's no that that the equities do not favor an injunction right now, given the usual traditional formula about balance of equities and the like. These are, these are possibilities. But, you know, I'm not trying to say that, that vigor or nationwide injunctions 
don't have a place on the menu. I would just I would just say that you know I think another thing we probably agree on is that relief can be fairly broad even if it's limited to the parties in the case because the principle is you give as much relief as necessary to give complete relief to the parties before you right and so sometimes that is broader than applying to the particular plaintiff. Sometimes if the plaintiff is a state, in fact, that relief is pretty broad and is still consistent with, you know, traditional uh, principles of, of equity. I think um, in vacator, I could imagine, uh, I mean, the problem with vacator is just it's so universal that it's hard to tailor it in any, in any meaningful way. Yeah, John. I, first, I think what we're now talking about is what's good federal equity practice, and I think that's the right question. I, I do think that for regulations as well as adjudications, there's a place for non-uniformity, for in, inter-circuit non-acquiescence because of the benefits of percolation. And the point I'll make again is that, yes, there are costs to having what amounts to variation in the content of regulatory law from one circuit to another, but the same thing often happens now with federal criminal law. Important federal criminal statutes can be interpreted significantly different in different in different courts of appeals. That's unfortunate, but it does bring with it the benefits of percolation. So I have another question from the audience. Uh, can offensive non-mutual collateral estoppel solve the problem of district courts? That is, if a district court finds a rule invalid and enjoins its enforcement against the plaintiff, can future plaintiffs come along to invoke that judgment in the same district court? Uh, isn't, isn't the U.S. government uh, protected from that by Mendoza? I think it doesn't usually apply to the U.S. government. Yeah. So, so, yeah. On some other panel, that would be a great answer, but I think on this one, uh, it doesn't doesn't work. That 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 too would be it would be a change here in the unwritten federal law of collateral estoppel. Yeah. Right now, it doesn't work that way against against the government. I think that would be a major change, the kind of thing that should, to pick up on saying that's the kind of change that should be done by Congress not, rather than by the, by, by the courts on their own book. Uh, do we, are we um, losing the, so th is the practice of the universal, I, I take it that the advocates of, or the opponents of universal vacater would also say that we're losing the benefits of the prohibition on non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel against the government by having universal remedies, right? Yes, it's an end run around it. Right, so if we, if we recognize the Mendoza principle, is that again an argument against, uh, against finding universal remedies? Like how do you reconcile the Men Mendoza principle with, uh, with your position, I guess, uh, Ron? Well, so, the, the, the legalistic difference is the difference between an adjudicative set setting and a, and a rulemaking one. But the, but the broad principle is, yes, there's a tension between them because if a court vacates a rule uh, and institutes it nationwide, then that's gonna mean no other court can, can deal with it. And that's a cost in terms of the potential benefits of percolation. Uh, so it should be rationed and limited to situations where you really need it. But I'm suggesting there are situations where you really need it because it would, it would just have uh, a great deal of, of um, confusion um, and inequity if you 
instituted to fewer than all the relevant parties. I mean, if you have, you know, State Farm um, 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 seatbelt rule, do you really want an injunction that says, okay, so the uh, policyholders of State Farm get to keep the Carter administration rule, but everybody else is governed by the Reagan administration's rule? You just can't have a, a regulatory regime like that. So there are times where it's got to be all or nothing, and if that means that the first court triggers the uh, dispute up to the Supreme Court, that that is a cost. Well, can I just ask about that also? So you say that you can't have a regime like that, but the agency would still be allowed to stop enforcing the rule across the board if they thought a patchwork rule was unworkable, right? So I think this is a point Beth made earlier. Isn't the question just who gets to decide, who, sh who should decide to what extent the, 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 uh, the regulation should be applied in a disuniform or uniform manner? Is it the court or is it the, the agency? Well, I do think you should give the agency flexibility in a number of ways. I mean, some of what I said in my opening talk was that it is primarily the job of the agency to, um, uh, to fix the rule on remand if the court has found an error in it. And so the court can't dictate what that's going to be. They have to leave it to the agency to do it. Also, the practice of remand with big, without bigotry, which I've mentioned, uh, I have defended as being in part leaving it up to the agency to decide how to fix the mistake um, that the court has found um, on remand. And uh, that kind of flexibility is desirable to the extent you can do it. So I, I'm not indifferent to that at all. Uh, but sometimes if the court says, here's the law, um, that would foreclose the agency from deciding that the law can be otherwise. They can limit their enforcement, that's true, but they can't construe it differently from the way the court construes it. I'd like to go back to an earlier point that came up. So in her opening remarks, Beth made the point that the government was making a statutory argument, but not a constitutional one. That is uh, whether Article 3 would allow Congress to provide for universal vacater. So I'm curious about um, John's position on this. So is your position that the APA doesn't authorize universal vacater, but if it if Congress did authorize it, that would be a permissible use of Congress's authority, or is there a constitutional limitation on uh, this kind of relief? I'm not 100% sure about what I think on that, but I do, but I do, I do, th I do think this. I do think that there, there are probably reasons for Congress, if it decided to authorize courts to courts to do this, there are reasons Congress might have to do that that probably would make it permissible under Article Three. Although I'm not, although I'm not sure, in large part because there's a long-standing equity principle that a broader injunction is permissible when it's necessary to give complete relief to the actual to the actual party. And that may be what, what's underlying the assumption in Section 705 that stays of regulations are generally operate as to as to everyone, although I'm not sure that assumption has been thought through as well as it should have been. And so I can I can see the courts saying, yes, Congress has made a judgment here that this kind of broad relief is necessary so that actual parties will get what the parties are entitled to. So I suspect I suspect that's 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 probably permissible. I haven't completely thought that through, so I don't really have 
developed? Could I add one other thing, which is that under special review statutes, Congress has for decades authorized a court to set aside a rule in its entirety if they find it to be illegal. And this was true well before the APA was adopted. There were cases involving the Interstate Commerce Commission and the Federal Communications Commission in which the legislation provided for it. And um, the court said uh, we would do it if the, if the challenger wins. And the, these cases were called to Congress's attention when the APA was under consideration. With 100 years of track record, I think it's, it's a little tardy to suggest that it's beyond Congress's power to uh, authorize a rule to be set aside in its entirety. I think structurally, though, you know, what what you're seeing here from a larger perspective is as the regulatory powers grew, the regulatory check grew and, and the check grew in the judiciary and not in Congress. And so you have, you know, potential legislation like the RAINS Act, which would provide checks on the regulatory state that are beyond the parties to a case, right? That are to entire rules and not in specific cases. Um, you know, I think the constitutional question is interesting. The constitutional question was raised in the attorney general guidelines that were issued in 2018. And uh, as far as I know, those guidelines are still in effect. Um, that's one of the, the few things the Biden Justice Department has not rescinded. And, and I think those were probably guiding some of the arguments that were made along with Professor Harrison's um, uh, academic work in, in the SG's arguments. So we have a question about this constitutional argument, which is the following. Congress can assign certain cases to one court. The federal circuit has some cases that no other circuit court hears. Unless that's unconstitutional, how can it be that Congress lacks the authority to pass a universal vacater statute? Would that be the same principle if Congress could restrict it to one court? Why couldn't they authorize one court to give an answer for the country? I mean, I think the argument is case case or controversy in Article Three, right? So even if Congress passed a statute, the argument would go they're not allowed to pass a statute that conflicts with Article Three, which limits uh, the judiciary to deciding cases or controversies. I think that's what Justice Thomas was referring to in his concurrence. Let, let me say on that, I have what maybe a minority position. I think Congress can can legislate concerning the rules of precedent in the federal courts. And so I think that Congress can say that, say, if one federal court of appeals makes a decision that it's precedential for all the other federal courts of appeals. I think Congress can do that. Many people, I think, would say Congress can't legislate about that. And so, yes, that would be a way for Congress to do something a lot like vacater by establishing, say, the first court of appeals or just one, the federal circuit or the D.C. circuit or, or any, any court to establish a nationwide precedent. That, like changing the rules of, of collateral estoppel, would be a substantial change in what I think Congress and not for the courts themselves. Okay, well, we're in our last minute of this discussion, so I guess I'll just ask, does anybody have any final thoughts that they want to add? And if not, I'll turn it over to our uh, host. Thank you so much. Uh, sorry to cut the discussion. I know it's been really, really good. On behalf of the Felgis Society and myself, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about other upcoming virtual events. With that, thank you all for being with us today. We're adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform. 
a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.